Let us now pray together. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the blessing of that hymn. Thank you for inspiring Francis Ridley Havergal to write it. Take these moments, take this day, and Lord, take our lives and communicate with us in this time together. Save in your power, sanctify by your word and your spirit, and speak to us each personally. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A careless word may kindle strife. A cruel word may wreck a life. A bitter word may hate instill. A brutal word may smite and kill. A gracious word may smooth the way. A joyous word may light the day. A timely word may lessen stress. A loving word may heal and bless. Our words are weighty things. Whether for good or ill, whether they help or hurt, our speech has no small impact on other people. No doubt this is why Frances Ridley Havergal, in her great hymn, Take My Life, made room for the following line of poetry. Take my lips... And let them be filled with messages from thee. Francis understood that our lips, like the rest of our lives, need to be consecrated to Christ, like every other aspect and facet of our being. Our speech must be submitted to the Savior we claim to follow. And so this morning, I invite you to join me in weighing up the words that we speak on a daily basis, on a moment by moment basis. We are going to survey our speech. And ironically, we will do that, at least everyone but myself, by listening, by for this 30 minutes or so, closing our lips opening our ears and listening to God speaking about our speech. So would you turn with me to the word of God for us today, which is found in Ephesians chapter 4. Please do turn there to Ephesians 4. Alongside some selected verses in Proverbs and also the tremendously powerful passage in James 3, this would be one of the summits in Scripture as God would address our speech here in Ephesians 4. The Apostle Paul, divinely inspired, 
talks about our talk, and he does so in three verses in Ephesians 4. Verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Then verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Finally, verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Well, this is God's word for us today. Now, if you skim the surrounding section, and I invite you to do that with an open Bible just now, you will note that Paul has more to say than simply to speak about what we say. However, among his many other exhortations to not be sinfully angry, to not steal, to not grieve the Spirit of God, to be kind and to be compassionate. Uh, Amidst these things, the apostle returns time and again, like a dog to a bone, to the topic of talk. If we might change the metaphor, the apostle Paul is rather like a dripping tap. Just when you think the dripping has stopped, there's another drip. Intermittently, repeatedly, persistently, Paul is drip-feeding, if you like, the Ephesians on this subject of their speech. Verse 15 is the first splash. Instead, speaking the truth in love. Paul then departs from his subject. He goes on to address various other things, but then he returns to speech again in verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. But then, again, Paul departs from the topic of talk, and he discusses various other subjects, and then he comes back to it again in verse 29. Therefore, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Now, in this repetitiveness of Paul, I believe this brings us to our first point this morning. Namely, the importance of our speech. You see, I think the reason why Paul mentions it here, and then he comes back to it there, and then he comes back to it again over there, is because he wants to emphasize the particular importance of this exhortation. It's rather like the preacher who keeps on repeating his main point to give you the main emphasis of the sermon. So the apostle Paul, in his writing here, keeps returning to this topic to underline its significance. Maybe it's a danger for us because speech is such an ordinary thing. Because our talk is such an everyday occurrence, because it's something that we do thousands of times every day, we speak, maybe we can be lulled into thinking 
that our speech is of little significance. But three times over, Paul comes back and he says, let me remind you, let me remind you again, let me remind you again of the importance of this matter. Now, it is not just Paul's repetitiveness, however, that I think underlines the importance of the way that we talk. Indeed, if we take the time, and it really is worthwhile, to explore a little of the context of these three punctuated phrases, I think we see even more reason why this is so important. Let me first of all suggest from the context that Paul implies that the very harmony of the church depends on our speech. The harmony or the unity of the church hinges on the way that we talk to each other. Paul in this fourth chapter has been calling for unity in the church. We see in verse 3, which is really the anchor verse of the passage, that he has urged unity on the Ephesians. He recognizes that unity is no automatic thing. Make every effort, it's an effort, to keep the unity of the Spirit. Again, in verse 13, he returns to this principal idea. His desire is that we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity, in other words, is to be an unashamed aim of every local church congregation. It's maybe not as dramatic or as seemingly exciting as, say, the goal of evangelism. But Paul says the goal of unity is very important. However, if we were to ask the apostle, Paul, tell us, how is this unity to be kept How practically do we make every effort to maintain harmony in the church? How do we do it? Then I think the apostle answers us in the remainder of the chapter. In the rest of chapter 4, Paul puts into practical terms how we achieve this unity. And it comes down to some very nitty-gritty things, like not getting bitter with somebody in the church who has wronged you, like learning what it means to forgive each other, like not stealing from each other in any sense. And three times over, Paul says that our speech is also something upon which our unity depends. This is why Paul speaks about unity, uh, about speech, sorry, in this section, because Upon it, our unity is contingent. For the devil to destroy the unity of the church, he only needs a singular weapon, one tongue, one gossip, one slanderer, one unwholesome talker. To destroy a fellowship, to destroy a fellowship group, to destroy a ministry team. See, one of the things we have to realize initially is that my words are not just about me. If I am loose with my lips, it affects the whole of the church congregation. It is not just my problem. It is the church's problem. Now, along with this, and I think heightening the significance even more, we also see that the holiness of the church 
depends on our speech too. You say that's a little bit extreme. The holiness of the church depends on our speech. Absolutely. Paul says here that our speech is an outworking, or it should be, of our saintliness. He makes this connection in verses 24 and 25. In verse 24, he talks about holiness. And in verse 25, he connects holiness to our speech. In verse 24, he says that the church is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says God has a plan for the church to make it holy. But then notice what follows in verse 25. Therefore, that's a linking word, in light of God's desire that we would be holy, therefore, what's Paul going to say? Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Do you see the connection, brothers and sisters? Do you see the logic? If you want to be holy, verse 24, then you need to watch your mouth, verse 25. Friends, we will never grow in holiness individually or corporately until we understand that our speech, our words, our tongue must be sanctified in the process of that. Do you want to examine how holy someone is? Listen to their talk over the course of a seven-day week. Ask their family about the way that they speak at home. Ask their work colleagues about the way that they talk. Don't just consider what somebody does or how often they turn up at the prayer meeting. Holiness is not merely a matter of whether we do our quiet times every morning. Holiness is a matter of the way that we speak. So our words have weight for two reasons here. First of all, for the unity of the church. And secondly, for the holiness of the church. And I hope that furnishes out a little bit something of the importance of the commands that Paul now gives in these verses. So let's turn secondly to the truthfulness of our speech. The truthfulness of our speech. It's significant, I think, that in the three mentions of speech, in verse uh, 15, 25, and 29, that of these three references, two of them relate to truthful speech. In verse 15, speaking the truth in love. And in verse 25, similarly, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Now, sometimes you come across things in the Bible which, when you really think about them, surprise you. And I have to say that as I was thinking a bit more about this than ever before this week, it struck me as a little surprising that out of the two, out of the three references, two times Paul should speak about truthfulness. I mean, if I were giving an orientation class to a new convert discussing the subject of Christian conversation, I wonder whether I would put in position A1 the truthfulness of Christian speech. Perhaps I would say a little more of what Paul briefly mentions in verse 29, avoid unwholesome speech. We would give a long lecture on the importance of that and avoiding foul language and so on. But Paul is first concerned 
And he is twice over concerned about truthfulness. Now, why is the apostle so concerned about this? Well, there is a very long answer to this, no doubt, and there is a deeper answer than I can give you this morning, but surely part of it takes us all the way back even to the book of Genesis and creation. I don't know if you've ever studied speech in the book of Genesis. It is a fascinating study. The first speaker in all the Bible, of course, is God. God is the first talker. And then we ask ourselves the question, who is the very first voice that Adam hears? Amazingly, it is the voice of God. Just imagine that experience. And then we understand that Adam and Eve spoke. And we see implied there that they must have spoke like God in sincerity and in truthfulness in the beginning. But then temptation comes and Satan speaks. And what is the language of Satan? Well, it is deceitful speech. Tragically, Adam and Eve buy the lie. They accept Satan's dishonest speech over the truth of God's word and God's command. And so it is no surprise that from that very moment, having now succumbed to the lie, that lies begin to flood forth from the mouth of Adam and Eve. Adam lies as he seeks to shift blame onto his wife, Eve. And then Eve lies. She says, it's not my fault, though it was her fault. The serpent deceived me. And then we discover that the lies... Uh, as well as the speech, the lying speech, continues down the generations because their children lie. And you remember how in Genesis 4, we come to Cain, the son of Adam and Eve. He's just killed his brother Abel. Knock, knock on the door. It's God. Have you seen Abel anywhere? Am I my brother's keeper? Says Cain, which was a lie. Essentially, he was saying, how would I know? He did know. It was a big fat lie. And we could go on and trace all the way through Scripture the history of lies and deceit, indeed right down to the present day. For you see, as we stand in the ancestry of Adam, the fundamental core of all sinful speech is the lie. That's why Paul says front and center here, speak the truth. The first sign of sin's corruption in the garden was the speaking of lies. Yet the first sign of sin's reversal is the speaking of truth. There is a new desire within a person to speak what is utterly truthful that was never there before. It's not to say that an unbeliever necessarily wants to be a deceiver through and through. But there is a fresh desire to in no way deceive other people. If you are not a Christian this morning, what you need to do, first of all, is not just try to clean up your speech, but to trust in the Lord Jesus who died for your sins, and to receive the Holy Spirit who is described in Scripture as the Spirit of truth. He will give you a, re a renewed desire and a new power, indeed, to speak truthfully. But you know, even as a Christian, this is something we must strive to work at. 
the utter truthfulness and the utter sincerity of the things that we say. Because lying comes in many forms, doesn't it? There's the more obvious lies. The tall story, chucking a sickie over the phone with a feigned voice. Would Christians ever do that? There's the more subtle stuff. When I flatter someone, ever flatter somebody? I'm lying. When I exaggerate a story to make myself look a little better, I'm lying. When I misrepresent someone's words by quoting them out of context, by sharing only half of what they said and therefore half of what they meant, I'm lying. Most gossip, we heard about that this morning, involves lying. Incidentally, how many sins of the speech actually relate to lying? Gossip is typically a lying action because even if what was said is true in the first place, it eventually snowballs into layers of lies. And then there's all sorts of others, even more subtle ways that we can lie. We don't even realize at times that we're doing it. What about in our evangelism? Do we ever lie in the way that we present the gospel? You say a Christian would never do that. Have you ever presented the gospel and left something out of the presentation that you thought the person wouldn't like? Do we present, for instance, the benefits and blessings of coming to Christ and yet not mention the cost of following Christ? Jesus never did that. In fact, Jesus talked up the cost. He told the truth. Do we tell the truth? Or the non-Christian colleague or neighbor comes to us with the kind of question that we just dread. Uh, They say, uh, do Christians really believe in the reality of hell? And they say it with a frown on their brow. And we know what the straightforward answer to the question is. Do we give the straightforward answer? Or are we tempted to kind of shade a version of the truth? Because we believe that if we give the honest answer, they'll be straight out the door and straight down the road and perhaps even straight to a lost eternity. But at what cost when our sincerity is compromised? So it's a matter, as Paul says, of forsaking falsehood, but also positively of speaking the truth. How do we grow in our ability to speak truthfully? Well, I've already mentioned one thing. We need to be possessed by the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth. But I think in addition to that, there is also the matter of getting the word of truth into our hearts, into our minds, into our very bones. If you want to speak truth, then you can do no better than study the Scriptures. Because Jesus once said that it is out of the mouth that the heart speaks. So if you want truth to come out of your mouth, then you need to get truth into your heart. And we do that by studying the word of truth, the Bible. We are on no safer ground, incidentally, when we are seeking to truth-tell than when we are speaking the words of Scripture to somebody. You see, I'm not even sure what it would mean to speak with absolute honesty, 
Speak the words of Scripture, you'll never go wrong. Gossip the gospel, and you'll never go wrong. One of the things I've been convicted of myself this week, and there has been a great deal in this passage, is the lack of time that I spend in conversation talking the truth of Scripture. Somewhere along the line, we've lost that culture of speaking the words of Scripture out with the sermon and the Bible study. We spend more time talking politics, talking about the latest in the scene at our workplace, talking about our children, and many other good things in themselves, but too little time talking about the Scriptures. In a church where that is the culture, however, where people talk truth, notice here the body is edified. Verse 25, for we are all members of one body. That's uh, Paul's motivation for speaking the truth. Paul says that in the church setting, we're more than just neighbors. Though we are that, we are more than that. You are, says Paul, members of one body. And body parts shouldn't lie to each other. Just imagine for a moment if the parts of your body lie to other parts of your body. You put your hand on a roasting hot stove but your hand lies to your brain. Though your hand is being burnt, the signal it sends up the nerve endings to your brain says, this isn't hot. Imagine the damage that would be done to the physical body if the various parts sent false signals to each other. And Paul says it isn't less harmful in the church. We need to speak the truth because we are part of the one fellowship, the one body. I wonder this morning whether we are heeding that as a church. Are we a congregation that is marked out by our honesty to each other? Do we speak sincerely to each other? And do we speak sincerely about each other? Do we say one thing to others' face and something else behind their back? Paul isn't uh, calling us, however, to be the kinds of people, because you could get the mistaken idea here, who just speak their mind. There are maybe some of us this morning who are saying, this is great, I love speaking the truth. Paul adds in verse 15 that we must condition this by speaking the truth in love. John Wesley, the great revival preacher, was once chatting to a lady She said to him, Minister, my talent is to speak my mind. Wesley replied, that's one talent God wouldn't care if you buried. Speaking the truth isn't the same as speaking your mind. It is a matter of sincerity coupled with charity. Even as I've been thinking of this sermon this morning, one of my great concerns is that as I speak this, I I speak it in love. And fulfill what Paul is saying here. Are we the kind of person who loves to tell the truth? Or do we love the people to whom we tell the truth? Well, Paul advocates truthful talk. But thirdly and finally, he also stresses another matter of our talk. The wholesomeness of our speech. 
First, the importance. Secondly, the truthfulness. And thirdly and finally, the wholesomeness of our speech. Look at verse 29 with me. He says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. What is fascinating is that this word unwholesome is only used a couple of other times in the New Testament. Two of the references come from the lips of the Lord Jesus. He uses the word in Matthew chapter 7 to speak of rotten fruit and rotten fish. That's really the idea of this. You can almost smell the idea. Unwholesome talk is rotten talk. And Paul is saying here that just as there is such a thing as rotten food and repulsive food, so there is such a thing as repulsive and rotten and decaying speech. I was sitting on the bus on Wednesday morning, and there was a a lady up the back of the bus who was talking very loudly to her friend. It was the kind of conversation that you can't help but listen into. It was so loud, and the whole downstairs got to hear it. And saying this in, in, in a way that can only come across as sounding critical, it really was unwholesome. It really went through the whole plethora of profane speech, from, from swearing to gossiping to, to mockery and slander. And we all got to hear this. And when I came off the bus, I felt kind of strange. I'd had my shower that morning, but I felt as if I needed a wash. You ever ever felt that way? You feel like you need to clean your ears out. There's something filthy in certain kinds of talk. There's something rotten. It's like if you've been in a fish factory. And Paul says here, we must avoid this kind of stinking speech. I think F.F. Bruce is right. He suggests here that not only is this emphasizing that the speech is rotten in itself, but it's also harmful. Because if you eat rotten fish, if you eat rotten food, it's going to harm your stomach. There's a kind of speech that is filthy and rotten, and it is harmful to those who hear it. Now, let's be honest. It's not hard to find illustrations of this on the television, in the newspapers, and indeed in many places around us. Recently, I've been watching the TV show The Apprentice. Some of you I know will have been watching it too with Alan Sugar. And I enjoy the program. I enjoy the basic format, the entertainment of it. It presents a different world from the one that I live in, the cut and thrust of the high-flying business world, I just wish there wasn't so much gross language in it. And it's a bit of a tension, in fact, because as you're watching it, you're wondering to yourself, is the benefit and the enjoyment of watching this outweighed by the negative of the unwholesome talk, which leaves you feeling like you need to clean your ears out? Certainly, we don't want to be listening to that kind of stuff too often. Then there's the comedians. I have to say, I really don't listen to any comedian on television pretty much. Some of you will think that's because I don't have a sense of humor. It's not true. Uh, But virtually all of them, at least from nine o'clock upwards, it's not only that they seem to profane and swear in every paragraph or even in every sentence, but some of them in virtually every word. 
Unlike the Lord Jesus Christ who could get a crowd without having to use foul language. It seems this is the only way you can get an audience. Now friends, we, we can't be judge and jury of everyone else. Though it may be at times that we have to express our concern about the way that people speak. But what we must do this morning, rather than pointing the finger, is to recognize that the thumb is pointing back at us. And we need to ask ourselves the question, do we, in various ways, allow unwholesome talk to come in to our speech as a church? Because we need to be different from the way the world is. I've known of situations where Christians have had to leave social gatherings of other Christians because the air has been so blue. And it's amazing what people write on email or Facebook or the web, which they might not dare say to someone's face, which they certainly wouldn't say in the context of a church, nor would they say it to their grandmother. There's a good test for you. If you're thinking, is my conversation suitable? Would you say it to your granny? That's not what Paul's saying here, but anyway. The wholesomeness of our speech should mark us out. What are the characteristics of wholesome speech? It's wonderful when you hear it. You kind of know it when you're listening to someone who's doing it. But what are the characteristics of it if you dissect it? Well, a couple of things briefly. It's constructive talk. To use the old word, it is edifying. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Verse 29 but only what is helpful for building others up. That's what edifying means. It means to build others up. It is constructive conversation. It's conversation which aims to be helpful, to be positive, to encourage other people. Unwholesome talk may initially seem amusing, but it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't build up anybody's faith. It doesn't encourage us in our walk with the Lord Jesus. If you've ever chatted to a Christian and gone away feeling uplifted, it is because that person knows how to find constructive lines of conversation. A second characteristic with this is that it is appropriate talk. It is timely. It is relevant. Paul says it builds others up according to their needs. It's not only helpful in itself, but it takes into account the concerns and the needs of the listener. If you're walking down the stairs today and you bump into that person whom you know has had a tremendously difficult week, it probably isn't the time to share the latest funny joke that you heard. There's a place maybe for that if it's clean and it's funny but it would be ill-appropriate at that moment. And there are other situations where, frankly, you almost need to lighten the mood. It's knowing what's appropriate. Does the person need a word of encouragement? Does the person need a word of correction, maybe of rebuke? It's a special gift, I think, among those who are particularly gifted in pastoral care. It is not just that they are able to open the Scriptures and share the Scriptures. It's that they know how to share the right scripture at the right time with the right person. That's a tremendous gift to those who have it. Wholesome speech is appropriate, it's constructive, and finally, it is gracious. We'll finish with that. The NIV translates the words of verse 29 that it will 
benefit those who listen. But a more literal translation, such as the ESV would be correct, that it may give grace to those who hear. That is really the fundamental description of wholesome talk. It gives grace to people. Just as an unwholesome talker, being in their presence, leaves you feeling dirty and and, and in need of removing the grime, so being in the presence of a wholesome talker leaves you with a sense of God and with a sense of God's grace. It really is quite a summit to be aiming for, isn't it? There's a great book I want to recommend if you're serious about tackling the issues of speech further. The book is called War of Words, and it's maybe the best book, I think, written on this topic. I love the book, but I think the bit I love best about it is actually the title, because it is a war, isn't it? It is a fight. It's a battle every day. Not just a war of words, but a a war with words. And I don't know about you, but I lose it too frequently. On a daily basis, we fight and we lose. We try, but we fail. And that is why in this area as in every other area of the sin in our lives, we should be so joyfully grateful for another who fought the battle and won it for us. They said of Jesus, do you know what they said? No one ever spoke like this man. That was not hyperbole. That was not an exaggeration. It was literally true. From Adam right down the line, we had all sinned in our speech until this man hit a never-before-seen standard or heard standard. Jesus said many radical things. He offended many people. But I do not believe that he ever sinned in his speech. His words were true. One of his favorite phrases was, I tell you the truth. He spoke sincerely. And his words were wholesome. As we said, the crowds flocked to him. And there wasn't a word of foul language on his lips. And his words were even more than that. They were uniquely life-giving words. He said in John's Gospel, I have the words of eternal life. From his own lips he proclaimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, then you need to realize that it is not your speech that needs to be addressed first and foremost. You need to listen to the words that Jesus speaks to you today. His words are words of eternal life. Because when he died on the cross, he died not only for all the other sins of action and will and thought, but he also died for the sins of speech that you have committed. And he offers you life today through his death, his sin-bearing death on Calvary's cross. He calls you to follow him, though it is a costly road to eternal life with him. And to those of us who already follow him, he calls us to speak like him, to learn his language, 
May your commitment be this. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Let's pray. Father, that is our commitment this morning. Forgive us for the many ways that we sin as we open our mouths. Thank you for your word to us today. Thank you for the words of eternal life. Thank you for the words of Jesus that were full of grace and truth. Help us to mirror him, to speak like him. Even as we go from this place this afternoon, may our conversation be full of the grace of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Time has gone this morning.